morning to everybody and welcome everyone and thanks for being a part of a special morning session on Saturday. Um, I promise that it would be a riveting one. I have the pleasure and privilege to introduce Maruf Raza, uh, author, strategic affairs expert and well-known broadcaster. Uh, welcome, sir. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Maruf Raza has been a former Indian Army officer, educated in India and England is now a well-known media commentator on global military and security issues. He's currently a consulting editor with Times TV network where he hosts award-winning shows like Line of Duty and Tales of Valor. Maruf Raza's areas of interest include the Kashmir issue, Sino-Indian relations and India's insurgencies. His published books include, among others, Kashmir's Untold Story, co-authored with another well-known author, Iqbal Malhotra, and a book in Hindi, Shaurya Gatha, Bharat Ke Veer Senani, co-authored with Colonel Shivdan Singh. Uh, there is, you know, before, before we jump into the, uh, the discussion, I'll lay out the format. We'll have, uh, you know, thoughts from Maruf Raza of the next half hour, after which I will engage in a Q&A with him uh, and if there is time, we will invite questions from the audience. Uh, there are a bit about the book. There are books that are written. There are books that are uh, read. And then there are books that are consumed. Contested lands, I have it right here before me. I urge everyone to go and read the book because this is a wholesome body of work. It takes a reader through the journey, the genesis of India-China conflict the journey, the trajectory, the impact, and the potentiality. All of this in 200 plus pages. There have been several books written on India and China, but this is one book that you must read if you would like to understand where we stand today and how we have arrived at where we are. A book for historians, strategic affairs analysts, regular readers alike. What you read in the media has roots in history, has roots in what happened in the 50s and 60s and thereafter. What you see in the media, the confrontation, the various alignments or the collision, collusion between uh, the, the various stakeholders is an outcome of several aspects that have been mentioned and articulated so very well in the book. Uh, it delivers a comprehensive narrative of disputes between the two countries. It's logical, lucid, and as I would have expected uh, Maruf Raza's style, he cuts through the, the rather complex narrative of India-China issues and presents a very readable book. Contested Lands is incontestably a brilliant read. I urge you to go and read that, the book, uh, before and without much ado, I would now hand over to Maruf <coughs> for the next half hour. Uh, please welcome, sir. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm extremely grateful to Captain Prabol Das Gupta, or was it Major, uh, uh, for the very, very kind introduction. Uh, both of us are ex-infantrymen. So it's an advantage that we have had when we look at issues concerning our neighbors, where at the end of the day, as there's an old saying, the last 200 yards of victory have to be measured on foot. And that the good old infantryman does 
and he's the one who plants your flag there. Uh, so for us, uh, understanding the ground realities and not sticking to uh, the larger academic issues, what I've brought to the table, as Prabhul has brought to your notice, is a combination of understanding of history and the practicalities of getting it done on the ground. So what is the problem? Uh, the book came about essentially during COVID times. It took me about six, seven months to write it. A lot of people believe that uh, that was rather quick for a book of this nature. But I would admit it is many years of study of China also that became a distilled document in this book. Um, I wrote it when Galwan happened. And thereafter, there were questions being raised by so many people that problem kya? And uh, there are no easy solutions, but it's easy to understand the problem. And, and therefore, I went uh, into a certain point. Now, people may argue that the roots of Sino-Indian boundary claims, and essentially it's about boundary disputes, lie in the 16th century. I would argue, uh, you know, there needs to be, as a historian, there needs to be a start point and there needs to be an end point. Uh, you cannot go into infinity and say, Ki, you know, we were great civilizations, why are we having a problem? Uh, and if you cut to the present, then you begin to ask and answer questions. Uh, currently, the Ukraine issue has also put India into a bit of a dilemma because if India goes along with old friend Russia and approves what it has done in Ukraine, tomorrow India's stand on expansionism on our borders will be questioned by many others that if you approve what Russia has done militarily, why do you have a problem with what China has done with you in 2020 and actually from the 1950s onwards? Why 1950s? And this is what I'll now take a few minutes to explain. You see, India-China relations are partly complex because our people at the top haven't bothered to study it. They have found evasive tactics to deal with China. Oh, we put it on the back burner. We are now onto a bulletless border and we are managing our relations without firing each, each other. So, you know, when time will come, we'll settle it. China can wait infinitely, can we? Secondly, the issue is about our policymakers being willing to take some harsh decisions. You know, you don't settle any dispute. Firstly, Mr. Arun Singh once taught me an interesting uh, approach. He says, you don't have a dispute unless you have two points of view. And if there are two points of view, then you have to understand the other person's point of view to come to some kind of a agreed uh, compromise or agreement. Some people are allergic to the word compromise, but whichever way you look at it, you have to stop eyeballing or punching at each other and come to some kind of a compromise. And this requires a certain give and take. And that requires a tall political leadership that is willing to give and take and willing to then accept that what are we insisting on keeping and what is China insisting on keeping. Now, before I go into the historical reasons why China is citing its claims on Aksai Chin, and the book is not just about Aksai Chin, 
uh, it is also very much about the dispute over McMahon line. McMahon line is the one that divides now China occupied Tibet or Tibet from Arunachal Pradesh and the real major uh, route our military phase in 1962 was on the McMahon line. In fact, uh, Prabhul's book about Nathula is again about that part of India and not so much about Aksai Chin, uh, where we were able to establish our own stand and convey a very strong message to China that the lessons of 62 have been learned. Now, China's claims on Aksai Chin are twofold like Pakistan's claims on Kashmir. Pakistan might argue that Kashmir should be a part of Pakistan because that was what was promised as part of the partition agreement and also because Kashmir was a Muslim majority state, so it should go to Pakistan. But that argument uh, fell flat on the ground when it became known that Pakistan was also hankering for the waters of Kashmir and not the people of Kashmir. The sooner the people of Kashmir understand that reality, the lesser they will be those chants for independence. As far as Aksai Chin is concerned, so we can uh, look at the map. And when you look at the map, you will find that on the right of India's map, on the top right, is the area Aksai Chin. And this area is of immense value to China, not just more recently, but it has always been of value to China, even uh, at the time of our independence. And even before independence, the Russians were interested in that area because the Aksai Chin area is a huge resource rich area which has uranium resource. The Russians were excavating uranium from there and shifting it north of India, north of POK towards the southern part of Central Asia, which is on top of Afghanistan. There was a place called Semi Palatanis. And that's where the Russians had their nuclear plants. And that's where the Russians eventually did the first nuclear test, 56. Now, uh, no, not 56, 49. But the point is that Russia and China started engaging very closely after Mao Zedong came to power in 49. And Mao saw that the importance of China in the world will only come when China has nuclear weapons. And therefore, to make nuclear weapons, you needed a nuclear plant and you needed mineral resources like uranium. And that is what was available in Aksai Chin. So that was one thing that was on Mao's agenda from the very beginning. The second thing was that the water resources that come from Aksai Chin, especially when you look at the Aksai Chin Lake catchment area, there is a lot of water resources there that come in the river systems is one of them. Uh, and the Karakash River and others. So the Chinese wanted to control the waters. And therefore, even now, the Chinese holding on to Aksai Chin is, as you see the map now, you will see on the map there is Aksai Chin on the top near Ladakh. And there is the McMahon line, which is above Arunachal Pradesh near Bhutan. Now, these are the two lines that are the lines of major contestation. And one, at least one US analyst, Bruce Rydell, who's written books extensively on Pakistan and 
geostrategy, has been advisor to three, four US presidents, has been on record to say that any further escalation of conflict between India and China in this region could also be the start of a world war. Now, whether Ukraine could be the start of a world war or could this lead to a full-fledged conflict which countries may get involved or not involved, uh, but he has made that assumption. I don't go along with it entirely, but that's an assumption. Then the Chinese decided to steadily occupy this. Why they occupied the Aksajin area was because there was very little Indian presence there. And this was only highlighted much later in 19, I think, 56 or thereabouts by a patrol by an officer from Prabol's regiment, uh, Captain later General Rajendranath, who was my commandant at the IMA Teradun, that there was a Chinese presence there. But this report was all again subdued uh, or put aside like the Henderson Brooks report. And the other was a number of flights that were taken up by a person called Wing Commander Jagginath. He was a younger officer in the 60, pre-62 days. He got a Mahavi Chakra for 62 and then got again a Mahavi Chakra for 1965 war. And he took massive amount of photographs all along this line, which again proved that China was building up massive presence there. So when the news hit Panditji in the public domain, and questions began to be asked in the mid-50s in parliament, I think 56, 58. Then, you know, you can't lie to parliament. So Panditji was in a spot and Panditji said that, you know, first there were arguments put across that why do we need to defend a territory where not a blade of grass grows? Uh, and there was a snide remark by another MP to say, if not a blade of hair grows on your head, will you not defend your head? But later on, uh, this became a confrontational point between Panditji and the then Army Chief General Maya. So, where was the problem? The problem in the first instance was because there was a lack of understanding in India and China exploited that lack of understanding about the lines that really spelt out the area of Aksai Chin. Now, as you saw in the map, the outermost hook of Aksai Chin, that area which is the boundary of the yellowish or yellow ochre area, the you know, area which has been covered as Aksai Chin. Now, that was a boundary line drawn by an Anglo-Indian surveyor. His name was Mr. Johnson. Now, Johnson had a problem with how the British white man treated him. He was neither here nor there. And the Maharaja then of Kashmir, Pratap Singh, decided to exploit this grievance inside Mr. Johnson. So he told him, he says, since you are marking out the boundary and there was nobody else going to mark out the boundary, he says, kindly stretch it as far as you can. So if you stretch it that far, then I can lay claim to all that territory and my empire becomes bigger and bigger. And Johnson was promised apparently a deal after retirement in the Maharaja's kingdom. So that's what came out is the Johnson line, which is in the outer periphery of Aksai Chin, is just for representation purposes, but roughly it's like this, which was the outer periphery for some time. Many, including the Maharaja, claimed that the British are not happy by the Maharaja extending his writ without the British permission because the British were actually controlling the Maharaja uh, like a child. 
you know, they had a protectorate in Kashmir. Then subsequently, the British then came about with what came to be known as, so this was 1866. And then the British came up with another line called the Ardak Johnson line. There was a guy called General Johnson, uh, Ardak. And General Ardak was the director of military intelligence. So he kind of drew a line which would address British concerns more because you see at that time, the British were dealing with Russians intrusions into northern parts of JNK, parts of Tibet, parts of Akhan Corridor, Afghanistan, etc. And the British were in a dilemma that if they confronted the Russian Empire, then Queen, Vic the Queen Elizabeth then, uh, Queen Victoria then was the aunt or cousin of the Russian Tsar. So there were family ties at that level and the British Empire didn't want to go into war with the Russian Empire. So they were trying to draw a line by Jahantak at the outside the Russians have reached. Let's kind of define that, okay, you stay there and this is the British Empire. You know, the lines were all part of empire boundary making. And then came about another line called, and this was a line that was uh, defined later as the Ardak Johnson line, and then came about a line called the McCartney line. Now, this McCartney line, Mr. McCartney was the British Council General in Kashgar. Kashgar is north of Kashmir in Sikya. And right now, the highway that runs through Aksaichin called Highway 219, G219, that is the main connecting communication road for China between Xinjiang and Tibet, two regions that the Chinese are very, very wary of. Xinjiang, as you know, there is resentment against Chinese control of the Uyghur Muslims. In Tibet, there is resentment against Chinese control of the Tibetan Buddhists. And so, therefore, there is this highway that gives China massive connectivity. It's like the Grand Trunk Road, sort of. This passes through Aksai Chi. So eventually, there came a situation that the Chinese first published an atlas between 1917 and 1933, and it accepted the outside boundaries of the Johnson Line. And the Johnson Line was the original line which gave that massive hook to Aksai Chi. Then later on, when the Chinese regime came into power, that is the communist regime, it dismissed everything that was announced by the Chinese empire earlier. And the Chinese empire had gone through stages of strong points and weak points. And then they said that we will accept the McCartney-McDonald line as the claim line, which ran halfway between Johnson line and Ladakh's Aksai Chi. It, it ran around the Kunlun mountain ranges, which runs halfway through. So there was a lot of debate to and fro in India that what should we accept as China's position. Now, let's go back a little more in history. That the British were very keen to define the outer boundaries of Tibet way back in 1900. That was 50 years before China made all these claims. Why? Because Tibet was an important country then. China, in some attempts to conquer Tibet, had got a thrashing. And funnily, Chinese troops went back to China via Calcutta by the seaport. So they came down from Tibet via uh, the Jamperi, Rage, Siliguri and those areas and then went to Calcutta and took a ship. 
So, you know, it was not a hard and fast rule those days that you can't step into my territory and I can't step in. I mean, there were British expeditions that went into Tibet under Lieutenant Colonel Young Husband. And they went back to Delhi and Delhi told London that Tibet is very important. It has a cultural thing. It has a resource importance to India, etc., etc. But what Mao and others were looking at Tibet much later was Tibet was the source of waters for Asia. Indus came from Tibet. The Brahmaputra came from Tibet. The Mekong River in Southeast Asia came from Tibet. Tibet had a lot of natural resources. It had even apparently other precious metals and uranium. So for Mao, Tibet was much more than just another territory. So in 1913-14, the British Viceroy in India convened a meeting over the boundaries of Tibet. And this meeting was spearheaded by a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Sir Francis McMahon. McMahon was a hardcore imperial a uh, subcontinental man, as somebody said, you know, burnt in the furnace of South Asia or the subcontinent. He was a tough soldier, scholar, diplomat. He had earlier defined what is now a point of dispute between Pakistan and Afghanistan called the Durand line. So he was asked to convene this conference. Now, he was quite optimistic he'd get something out of it. And several rounds of discussion took place. The Chinese representative who came from the very beginning was dragging his feet. Two reasons. One was that China had tried to capture Tibet around 1912 and had got a thrashing. And other than that, China claimed all of Tibet. The British were trying to work out an outer region of influence and an inner region. So the inner region, if you look, map please. If you look at the map and you see Tibet, the area is closer to Lhasa and the central part of the Tibetan plateau was to be part of the inner region. And the outer part of the Tibetan plateau, which went much closer to Shanghai, Beijing and even towards Mongolia, was meant to be area of Chinese influence. Now they were trying to settle a deal there, but the problem was the southern part of Tibet. That is the boundaries touching Ladakh, Nepal, Bhutan, Arunachal Pradesh and all. They needed to define that. Now, Nepal's boundary with Tibet was already defined. And so was Bhutan's boundary, though China and Bhutan still have disagreements over which part of territory should go to grazing land to China and which other way around. But it was this large chunk called in those days, the frontiers, later became Nifa, later became Arunachal Pradesh. That needed to be defined. So many meetings between Delhi and Shimla that took place because of changing weather finally led to no answers. And Sir Henry McMahon in frustration pulled out a map, whatever he could lay his hands on. And this was not a metric map. As soldiers would know, a metric map defines an area in much greater detail. But a quarter-inch map defines an area very narrowly. So, you know, in a quarter-inch map, you'll find the entire city in one round hill, like you have seen Ladakh in one round hill. You see, you know, Nepal and all is given like this. But in a metric map, which is much bigger and more details are brought in. Hills, ranges, watershed lines, rivers, everything is more clearly visible in a metric map. 
but with much ceremony and not to be embarrassed that the conference was going to collapse completely after almost six, eight months of Shimla and Delhi doing and flowing. Mr. McMahon drew a thick line with a thick pen, what came to be known as the McMahon line. Now, that line, when you interpret it on the ground, and Prabhul will be able to explain it better than I, that line could be a kilometer broad or more because a thick pen line on a metric map is nowhere close, uh, on a quarter inch map is nowhere close to what a thick line might mean in a metric map, which is it will actually go along a river or a nala or watershed or whatever. But here it takes everything into place. And so today also we have this disagreement that the Chinese are building camps on our part of the territory and they are, and this is our perception of the line and this is their perception. So having explained all this to you, I would like to sum up to say that while the McMahon line uh, became at least something demarcated and Pandit Nehru was on record to say that as far as I'm concerned, this is our border on that side and it is settled. China sometimes was willing to admit it, sometimes was not willing to admit it. But it is Tibet and its fate and its adjoining areas of Aksai Chin and Ladakh that was left unsettled then, 1913-14, unsettled much later in 19. 17 to 33 because of the Chinese maps showing something and our maps claiming and in fact the Chinese maps then went along with our claim line of the Johnson line and much later than the new Chinese regime comes and claims an area which is closer to our territory and this is where the punching matches have recently take place somewhere close to that in along the Shiok River and all that what became. So these were the two defining positions. Then we slipped into this whole appeasement era of the Chinese, which Panditji adopted, that we are two new countries. So let us have a new friendly relationship. And one of the blunders that was made then was that the Panshil Treaty, which in itself was not a bad idea, but the Panshil Treaty in its title says Tibet region of China. So that means as a nation, you acknowledge that. But at the same time, Panditji published maps of India, which have been more recently published again of the various types by the BJP government. And they showed the entire region of Aksai Chin as belonging to India, which is what the Chinese maps had earlier said up till 1933. But China was disputing that when Mao and his communists came into power. So there was that one problem. So China was upset with the new maps. While you are giving uh, a sort of accommodative treaty to the Chinese to do whatever they wanted in uh, Tibet, and we started removing some of our trading posts also from there. So our listening post, our watch post, everything was very quickly removed from there. And Tibet was de facto allowed to become Chinese territory. We did not pass or stand up for a single resolution against Chinese occupation of Tibet around 1952 and thereabouts. So Mongolia stood up, a small country with a border with China. Ecuador stood up, but we kept quiet. So China knew that Nehru's weak spot was that he didn't want to anger the Chinese. Also, Panditji was very taken in with his idea of non-alignment. 
He says, Mahatma Gandhi has become world famous with non-cooperation. I should become famous with non-alignment. So the Americans were keen for India to become part of the American camp. But Panditji refused saying that we are non-aligned. So we were looking at Soviet five-year growth plans and five-year models of growth. We were looking at uh, America to be a friend by our side because we were democracies, but we were not really on anybody's side. And this paid, we paid heavily for it in the 62 conference. Three, four things got China's backup before 62. Officially, the map making process, the claims that McMahon line is our border and I don't want to discuss it further. The map claims over Aksai Chin, which got the Chinese backup. The ongoing engagement between India and the US because uh, America's Secretary of State Dean Acheson onwards had started using India as a launchpad to engage with the Tibetans. And the Chinese then and now have been very sensitive to the Tibetans engaging with the outside world. Dalai Lama's, one of his brothers lived in San Francisco. Another brother of his would be in the US and come back and become an engaging point in Kalimpong, Darjeeling, in those areas with Tibetan Lamas who would go back to Lhasa and carry the message. And it is believed that when Dalai Lama finally escaped to India in March 1959, the CIA orchestrated his entire release. But before that, the CIA had been arming and training and even airdropping Tibetan commandos into Tibet to play hell with parts of Chinese army floating around in the vast open deserts of Tibet. These are known as Gompa rebels. And they, Chinese, were very upset by India becoming the launch pad for many operations against China in Tibet. So the US factor played on China's mind while we kept saying we don't want to be part of the US alliance. Finally, air photographs that were brought in by Wing Commander Jaginath, it showed very clearly that China had been building nuclear facilities in Lucknow, which if you look in the map is just up on top of Nepal. You know, and in Lopnor, they didn't want their facilities to be uh, to be deciphered and message to go back to America, which will obviously stop China, would have stopped China from becoming a nuclear power. This is the kind of thing Israel does whenever it finds any Arab countries making nuclear weapons or it has a reactor like Iraq had in 1982, then Israel goes and bombs it. So China did not want that nuclear plot of theirs to be exposed. Now, what was happening is the photographs that came to Delhi were being passed on to British intelligence because Delhi had an open link with British intelligence through the 50s. Every day, a report and a briefing went to an MI officer in Delhi by IB. Those photographs were passed on to London and also to Washington. But in London, sitting as the head of British external intelligence was a person called Kim Philby. Kim Philby was a Russian spy. He was passing it back to Russia. Russia was telling the Chinese, what the hell are you doing? They are getting to know that you are making this nuclear reactor. So Mao was in a desperate hurry to keep India off his back. So after repeated attempts to try and convey to India that get off our backs, India adopted various policies which were beginning to upset the Chinese. One was the so-called forward policy. It has later been argued by Mr. K. Subramaniam, the father of the current foreign minister, S. J. Shankar, 
that the forward policy was only a lookout post to see what China was doing on the other side. But you were putting across very thinly armed groups of five, six men, inadequately equipped for the winter, inadequately armed for a Chinese patrol to come and knock them off. And they were meant to be lookout posts. Chinese saw those as Indian military intrusions into Chinese territory. And the second thing was that with no understanding of the ground reality, Pandit Nehru had appointed a man who the army abhors, Lieutenant General Biji Kaur, who was a logistics man, had no concept of how fighting is done in the mountains and had exposure to military units and all like everybody in the military has. But to command troops, you have to grow up with the troops and have to understand the ground. So he was made overall in charge of our sector in the Northeast, that is the NIFA sector. A four core was created for his pleasure. And the 33 core where General Umrao Singh stood up to Panditji and all was sidestepped into Siliguri and said, you quietly sit there. So BG Call continued to create a view in Delhi that we can handle the Chinese. There's no cause for worry. Krishna Menon loved to hear all that because he was Krishna Menon's pick. General Thapar, Karan Thapar's father, took a back seat and chose to remain quiet as army chief. He succeeded the much admired General Thimaya, but Thimaya had confronted Nehru over the announcement that I've asked the army to throw the Chinese out. Thimaya said, at least speak to me before you ask around that the army will throw the Chinese out. We are not equipped, we are not adequately positioned to throw the Chinese out. But us confrontation with Thimaya had resigned. Nehru, in a personal conversation with him, asked him to take the resignation back. Next day announced in parliament that I've ordered the army chief to take his resignation back. So Thimaya thereafter became a lame duck chief. I believe Thimaya should have still resigned and walked out. But Thimaya stayed on and this gave ground to Nehru, Krishnamen and others to create a mindset in South Block that our writ runs on military issues. You know, various things came up, including the Government of India Rules of Business of 1961, which thereafter said that in future, India's security will be handled by the Defence Secretary of India, not the service chief. So till date, if we get attacked by China, Pakistan or anybody, it's not the service chiefs who will respond. It is the Defence Secretary who will have to sign a letter to him, as Mr. H.C. Sareen had then done, and give it to them, ki, please fight the Chinese or the Pakistanis. I mean, that is the shoddy state we are still in. Anyway... So BG Call created this climate of great belief that we will take on the Chinese. On the other hand, there was other general officers who were all going along with the Krishnamen and Nehru line that China will not attack us if they can. Nehru even once said, I have the police, we can throw the Chinese off. But there were General Thapar, there was... Uh, there was General Buller, who later acquitted himself well in the 65 war. There was a General Thiller, sorry. Uh, there was Monty Pallet, a Gurkha officer, who later wrote his own explanation on the war in the high Himalayas. But he was DMO and his inputs were not heard. In many cases, he went along with General Thapar. There was General L.P. Sen, Eastern Army commander, who was overall responsible for our eastern sector. Again, a brave soldier, DSO from World War II, but he stood back and let himself be ruled over. So we had a situation that the Indian army on the ground was receiving commands from people who didn't know what the ground looked like. 
The Indian Army troops were ill-equipped. They were not provided clothing and weapon systems to fight a Chinese attack. And they were positioned in ridiculous places along nalas and rivers where troops are never put in in defense when you have to defend a territory. You have to defend it from a high ground. Enemy will come rolling down onto your nala and river. And that's what happened on the first night of 20th October 1962 that the Chinese rolled down at river Namkachu and 2nd Rajku, the brave battalion, was almost wiped out. More than 500 casualties in one night. More than we lost in the entire Kargil conflict. So just to give you a context. Secondly, other troops were also given conflicting orders. Some days they were asked to hold on. Some days they were asked to withdraw. And that is how the fall of Tawang took place. There was complete confusion. First orders were given for withdrawal. When they started withdrawing, then they said, go back and take your position. By then the Chinese were coming in. So there was a right royal mess and a rout took place. Luckily for us, General Dalat Singh and General Bikram Singh, who were holding the front on the Ladakh front, were solid soldiers. They didn't listen to Delhi. And like General Sagat Singh in the 1967 Sino-Indian Nathula conflict, he cut off the telephone lines from Delhi and he said, let me bloody well handle it. And that's what these guys did. I still get messages from General Dalat Singh's son, who's in Australia, and saying, you've written a book that I should have written. My father told me everything. And it's all in your book. How did you get it? But he said they held the line. And there are famous stories of battle from 62, the Battle of Rizangla, which is still studied by the Pakistan army as the finest act of defiance and defense. And they all died, except for two people who were heavily wounded. They crawled back and in their blood, they were lying and the Chinese gave them up as dead. They're still there in Rewadi near Gurgaon to tell us the story. And I recorded that in my series, Tales of Bala. The rest of them under Major Shaitan Singh, I don't know what his parents thought when he gave him the name, but the name was apt. He really, for the Chinese, was the devil. He and his 110 men died to the last man. And he got a Paramichakra, rightly so, but many fierce battles were fought. There was a Ladakhi chap, you know, for six months, he was alone in a bunker in DBO, thinking DBO is the famous airfield that we now have, which allows us to hold off the Chinese when the Chinese are intruding into Depsang Plains and Siachen. He held on to this for six months alone with a little sigri and some rations, thinking Indian troops will come. And he kept every day hoisting the Indian flag there at DBO. You know, his story is there in Kunal Verma's book, 1962, The War That Wasn't. I have covered it in my TV episodes also. So this, these were the kind of Indian soldiers. And look at the leadership we had. Whatever justification people give for Pandit Nehru and his brilliance and whatever else, Pandit Nehru was a good administrator, should have stuck to that. He tried to become a statesman and a foreign policy Mandarin. He failed us. So the Chinese taught us this lesson that Mao wanted to teach us a lesson to basically get us off his back and our probing eyes. And in the one month, he attacked us, he went back and he went back to his old claim lines, which is the 1959-60 claim line around Aksai Chin, which even now when the Galwan standoff took place, the Chinese premier and the foreign minister again sounded that 59-60 line. In between on several occasions, they've said, 
we will keep Aksaichin, you keep Ladakh. Uh, we, we will keep Aksaichin, you keep Nifa or Arunachal. To take a stand. Because we have said that Akhand Bharat We should even go out and get POK and we should get everything else. Where are your resources? You don't have the money, you don't have the resources, and you think, you know, the Chinese and the Pakistanis are Burma and Sri Lanka that you can just walk in and knock them over. I mean, you'll have a problem on your hand that you itself. As I say to various people, I say, aapke paas hai, wo to raha, aap So we have to get a little real that what is it that we can live with and we can make it a prosperous India and a great India. Just by acquiring territory, you don't become great. Israel became an independent country about our time, 1948. The world sees it as a heavyweight. Singapore is the size of Delhi. The world sees it as a heavyweight. The world still sees India as a country in waiting, a great power in waiting. Why? Because we are overstretched. And if we are overstretched, we have to put resources in place to at least have in good control what we have. So the book brings that out. The book also brings out the fact that we could have altered the story in the 62 conflict had we used our air force. We had better capable aircrafts. We had better pilots. And our flights were flying from the plane so they could fly with full fuel and payloads. But we were scared that if the Chinese are upset, they will use the Air Force. Or kitna upset karna tha? Hundreds of soldiers had already died. You were still scared of hitting them. And the biggest culprit of the 62 conflict, who I have not mentioned as yet, was Panditji's advisor, Bholanath Malik. He created a situation where he got CRPF people ambushed in the, uh, what is that, Kongpa, Kongpa ambush, he got them done. What is it? I think it's Kongpa. So he got them ambushed to create a fear that, you know, don't confront the Chinese. He said with Menon and others and got the air chief, APC engineer to go in line with them that we should not use air force. And the American ambassador then was happily smiling, John Galbraith, when Panditji wrote two letters to Kennedy on the same day. He provided his Air Force. Kennedy's response was, first use yours. And why China attacked us in, 69, in 62 between 19th, 20th October and 1920 November was the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. When the world's attention was divided on Cuba, China attacked us because they knew they wouldn't bother about a smaller sideshow. So that was 62. We had a, that book covers it. After that, we, I also bring out what the Henderson Brooks report talked about based on various media reports. And the Henderson Brooks report is not a report on the political establishment. The Henderson Brooks report is about how we went militarily wrong and we should make military correction. But the political establishment felt that if we control that report and keep it hidden, then people will not read the report and draw assumptions that Panditji and Krishna Menon and others were responsible for the debate. But by 67, as Prabhu's book brings out, we were a different army. We had got a wake-up call. We stood up to the Pakistanis in 1965. And interestingly, just after the 62 debacle, the Chinese signed a deal with Pakistan for the Shakskam Valley, which is north of Siachin and JNK, which has got the largest collection of glaciers in the world, 242. 
because they want to melt the glaciers and get waters out of them. And the water is going to allow them to make microchips eventually. Because what happens is 10,000 liters of static water mixed with chemicals and sands. And north of Kashmir, there's a big desert called the Takamakan Desert. Mix that with the waters of Indus and the dams out there and chemicals. And you create, every 10,000 liters, you create a 30 centimeter square silicon wafer block. And that makes many, many nano-sized microchips. And that is what goes into your phones and satellites, everything. So China has got an agenda for it from the 60th. As some general said, we are just counting the crows on the hilltops and the treetops. We are not even looking at the stars. The China was working on it. So Pakistan and China signed a deal in 1963 after a humiliation in 62 for the Shakskam Valley secession to China. It's 5,000 square kilometers. And China has got it. You're not going to get it back. Whatever the claims of our chest-thumping jingoists. Next, we have a situation in 67 where we gave them a bloody nose under General Sagat Singh. I believe something close to about 340 casualties took place. China didn't admit to all of that. China said 65 casualties, but at least they admitted to casualties. So China became quiet for 20 years after that. And then in 86, 87, they again intruded into what is, show the map again, please, into what is the area called Somdarongchu. Somdarong Chu is near Namka Chu in the McMahon line area, where again China did its salami slicing and came and tried to say, humne occupy kar liya. So you see where Somdarong Chu is written. So whatever we grab, we will keep. We had a very bright and capable army chief then, Jan Sundarji. He said to hell with you. And he had a tough core commander there and some brigade commanders. And he said, fly in troops by helicopters and put them all around. So when Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi got to know about it, it was on the Navy Day Tea Party on 4th of Jan. And he asked for a meeting of the cabinet and the security establishment after tea in South Block. And he asked General Sundarji, he said, General, what have you done? And Sundarji said, Prime Minister, I, and Sundarji has told me this and as many words. In one evening, I spent with him in Washington in 95 when I left the army. He says, Prime Minister, I have done what has been mandated to me by the cabinet resolution. And he says, what is that? He says, to defend every piece of Indian territory. So he says, what should be our policy to China? This is the Prime Minister of India asking. So Sundarji kept quiet. So a voice, trouble, no disrespect meant to you, with a distinct Bengali accent said, Madame's policy was that don't upset the Chinese. So Rajiv mimicked this gentleman who had had a long-standing tenure in various cabinets. Where did Madame get this policy from? So he said from Panditji. So the matter ended there and Rajiv Gandhi said, so that will be our policy. So Sundarji said, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, Prime Minister, in that case, you'll have to look for another professional opinion. I've done my job. I'm not going to ask the troops to withdraw. He saluted him. And said, that's all I have to say. Luckily for Rajiv Gandhi, next day the Chinese will do it. Because Chinese understand your ability to stand up to them. And then, of course, Prime Minister Gandhi was invited to a red carpet talks by Deng Xiaoping and started the whole sets of dialogues, which 24 rounds of special representative talks today has led to nothing. 
I say often on television that all they do in these talks is have chowmin and do sightseeing in Beijing. So what can we expect? Where are we at? And this is where I come to Galwan and thereafter. See, if China tries to push us militarily, we are not the army of 62. I have a chapter in my book which says 192020 was not 1962. We will hold them off at every inch where we are holding. It is for the government to decide whether we want to hold them off. But I know even if the government asks the army to pull back, it will not pull back. Just like successive governments have tried to suggest that the army pull back from the Siachen Glacier. And I'm proud that some army chiefs, at least in public, have said, give us ironclad guarantees. Sign the damn map on the actual ground position line that cuts through Siachen, where we are sitting in all the high heights. And the glacier lies behind us, not inside Chaya, Pakistan. Wo to 10 kilometer dur mein ja ke kisi aur glacier mein unke journalist ko camera se piece to camera karate hain, hum siyachin mein khade hain. Arre, aap pohunche hi nahi to kaise khade hain? That is the truth. I've been there, I've spent time there. So, we have to be very clear. Can we confront the Chinese militarily today? Yes. There are issues. We are building our infrastructure. And after the Sundarutu standoff, one wake-up call to the Ministry of Defense was that we start building our infrastructure so that we are able to have better positions, better logistic support, better communication systems for our troops to defend India. You know, strangely, for from the 60s to the 90s, there was a damn view in South Block that if you make roads from Himalayan borders down to India's towns in the plains, you will make the Chinese easily come down on India. So don't make roads. Such are the stupid idiots who have been responsible for India's national security policy. They don't read books. They don't understand strategic situations. And I'm sorry to say that recently we gained an advantage against the Chinese on the Kailash Ranges when our special forces went and occupied that and the Chinese didn't know where to look. They were in panic in Galwan when we occupied and our Maharati ne vapis de diya ki hum unke saath disengagement karenge aur hum unke saath baatcheet karenge. To ye jo elan hai na ki koi bhi territory Bharat ki China ki kabze mein nahi hai aur hamari territory mein nahi hai. Agar nahi hai, to aapne galwan mein kyun ladai ladi? Aapka kyun China ke saath tension hai? Let us pull back the troops from there. Additional 50-60,000 troops are there. Why are you deploying them? If your territories are not threatened. So we mislead people with wrong statements. The wrong statements are put into the mouths of our political leaders by our establishment. And the biggest culprit is the Ministry of External Affairs, who love to wax eloquent with a glass of wine in their hand wearing silk ties. But diplomacy today is about dirtying your knees and dirtying your elbows. You're not willing to do that, then don't take on that. So that, in short, I've taken 45 minutes, but that is my story, which is in this book. I'm happy to be court-martialed and asked questions. Whatever you wish to ask, I will tell you the truth and only the truth as I know it. Thank you, sir. This has been a very engaging, uh, riveting session. Uh, you have encapsulated uh, the book in last 40-45 minutes. In uh, in, in a very engaging manner, and I think that's, that moves chronologically from the start 
to the present. Uh, and a lot of what we are seeing today lies in the genesis of what happened in the past. The two yeah. countries, uh, you know, they've run parallel histories. 1947, India well, got independence. 1949 was the beginning of a new uh, China. Yeah. The genesis, uh, however, has been different. One, one talks about freedom from imperialism uh, as a goal. The other talks about rehabilitation of its pride. Uh, and you have written in the book in terms of how uh, one has, you know, been uh, focused on idealism and the other one on realism. Uh, where do you think, you know, and you've spoken about the 1940s and 50s, uh, which culminated in the disaster or debacle of 1962. Uh, there are several instances uh, that you write about. Uh, which do you think uh, would be would be a turning point? Say, for instance, India's rebuff of the American offer to join an alliance was that the biggest uh, one, or is it a combination of several ones? Tibet being at the heart of the issue, China was focused on Tibet. We did not understand it. We didn't try to understand it. Uh, but but the but where do you think was the nub of the issue that led to the whole thing ballooning to where we reached in 1962? Well, the first was that uh, China was given to belief that we didn't have a stomach for confrontation. So, you know, this whole approach of appeasing the Chinese, of the Panchil agreement, and even as we know, Chao Enlai came to India, even then he made a proposal, what is called the 5960 agreement, that, and it's, the, the sum of the agreement is given in my book. Briefly, he said, you keep what you keep, we keep what we keep. And the uncontested or the unoccupied areas, let us have discussions on that. I mean, Panditji was more wanting to do hospitality with him, uh, just like Panditji in his visits to China was not really wanting to talk to Mao about the border issue. And that was the border issue was at the heart of Mao's agenda. But Mao said, Agar baat karna chahte, to rene, you know, keep it on the side. And Panditji kept it on the side. So the agreement could have been reached even before the conflict. One. Second, while saying that we'll not be in the American camp, it's a kind of situation. You know, I wrote a piece in Tribune two years ago that 1962 deja vu after Galwan, in which, you know, you are again engaging very deeply with the Americans. But you're not exactly an American ally. You were not then in 62. You're not then now. But the more you engage with America, the more it gets China's back up. You were allowing American special forces to do operations and do airdrops via India. And some of them were over flights that took place from East Pakistan over Indian territory, going to drop paratroopers and Tibetan trained Khampa rebels in there and create mayhem for the Chinese. You were providing uh, all sorts of support to the Tibetan uh, Dalai Lama. And Dalai Lama was not in Lhasa for some time before he exited Tibet because the Chinese had rolled into Lhasa and they were trying to capture him, but they, his followers made him escape. So he was floating around in the Tibetan plateau and you were trying to allow his coming in. And strangely, when Dalai Lama arrived in India, Indian territory near Kasyong, uh, on 30th March 1959, Panditji said that he wasn't aware of that, what was happening. But other side, he was micromanaging the entire foreign ministry. Who received him? 
MP Menon, I think the father of Shiv Shankar Menon or close relative of Mr. Shiv Shankar Menon, leader FS and NSA. So the ME was in picture. So they had their man receive the Dalai Lama when he arrived. So the support we gave to the Tibetan, and this was 59, the war happened two and a half years later in 62. So this obviously got again China's backup. Fine, we took a moral position that we are not allowing him to make political engagements, but we are giving him uh, refuge in India, which has been the case now. But the Chinese don't go much for all this double talk. Right? Thirdly, we, the so-called forward policy, which had our troops taking positions beyond the Thagla Ridge in Arunachal and north of Arunachal and beyond our given positions in closer to Chinese occupied regions in Apsaichi. So all this made China unhappy or nervous or call it what you mean. I think these were broadly the three reasons that China said that enough is enough. And of course, Pandit Nehru's growing international stature, you know, after the Bandung conference of non-alignment, he became the great leader of the non-aligned world. And Mao Zedong obviously wanted to teach him a lesson or to bring him down to Mother Earth. So I would say these four factors were clearly on Chinese mind and are probing air photography of the Lopnor facilities which put China's nuclear program uh, in the eyes of America. And China felt if America has such close links with India, they will use Indian air bases to refuel re and then one day hit us and destroy our entire nuclear program. So those were the issues. Right, right. And in fact, you know, you spoke about Lopnor. In the 1960s, there was a mountaineering expedition led by Captain M.S. Kohli which had taken the transmitter up there to understand whether uh, the Chinese uh, nuclear preparations could be monitored. And this was just before, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, before the Americans lost interest here after the arrival of uh, President Johnson. Lyndon Johnson came in and, uh, you know, the CIA virtually went away from here and the Tibetan movement also started to collapse. Uh, but, you know, one of the points which I read in the book, again, which is significant, given that Tibet... And you bring it out in your book that Tibet gained independence uh, in 1914, 1914, and till 1950 uh, or 49, when China, uh, the, China the, the, the communist government took charge uh, in China, Tibet had no status. And for 36 years or 35 years, it wasn't able to get the status of a nation. And I think one of the countries you mentioned, El Salvador, had raised the Tibetan issue. And yet uh, it's, it's quite in, it's incredible that for 35 years, um, uh, India did not uh, raise the issue. India did not, uh, you know, push the issue of Tibet being recognized as a as an independent nation or an entity. Uh, just just switching from that period to 1962, which you dealt uh, about in your uh, talk today and in the book, you asked a very in, very pertinent, seemingly easy but a tricky question: Would the outcome have been different if General Call? General Biji Call and then Nehru Menon Kotri uh, wasn't taking the decisions. Uh, you've, you've asked that. Uh, let me let me just maybe, you know, that's that's again a question that I would ask. But the other thing more, uh, uh, which is which is a more detailed one is, do you see 1962 as an inflection point? Uh, 
because it is only after that you mentioned 1967 and Sundarung Chu and the subsequent uh, standoffs with China that had happened that have happened over the years. But we have always uh, seen up until 62, we were, uh, you know, the second best. And of course, we were bested in 62 because of all of the all, all the, the, the decisions at a higher level, uh, which had happened before that. But do you see 62 as an inflection point just to flip it and see that, you know, look, this is where things started to change. And you briefly talk about the change of uh, hands, the arrival of defense minister in 1964. Uh, Javan, I think, and I think all, all of that changed with the 1965 India-Pakistan war. But just briefly, uh, you know, how would you look at it from from that? Yeah, point well, there are three points. The first is, if Tibet was independent uh, for about 35 years, what is the problem in announcing Tibet as a nation and recognizing it as a nation? I think again, Panditji faltered there, but also the world. The British came up with a concept of suzerainty to substitute the arguments of sovereignty. So they said, well, there was Tibetan suzerainty over their territories. But, you know, America and the others were looking for a British lead on the subject. And, you know, Britain was at that time a very important nation. And the British were looking to see which side India would go on the subject. So because India didn't take a stand, Britain didn't take a stand, so America didn't take a stand and, you know, Tibet lost out. Because if Tibet was a recognized nation, then China's occupation of Tibet at that time would have had implications for China that would have had to answer even now. China was not then a member of the UN Security Council. There's another blunder that Panditji made is to give China the seat that was being offered to India for the Security Council. So we continue to sit in the General Assembly and sometimes get elevated to the UN Security Council on a temporary two-year tenure as we are right now. Otherwise, our basic position is sitting beside Mauritius, Seychelles, Fiji Islands and Papua New Guinea because they're all members of the UN and so are we. Big deal. Only our diplomats like the idea because it gives them fancy UN postings and post-retirement careers. But anyway, the UN be damned. I don't have much time for it. now. We come to 62. Was it an inflection point? Of course. And could we have done better with a different leadership? Well, even if the current, even if that then existing military leadership made some minor changes, we would have survived the debacle. You know, if Krishna Menon and Nehru kept away from micromanaging the battle, and as Brigadier Dalvi has written in his book, The Himalayan Baranda, that, you know, it was worse than the charge of the light brigade. And we had the fall of, I mean, brigades, seven brigade led by Brigadier Dalvi were being ordered from Delhi when people didn't even know where the Thagla Ridge was. So there was a complete and abdication of responsibility by military commanders. General Thapar, who cried apparently after the defeat, what good was his tears? General Bogisen, what good was his DSO in World War II in Burma if he didn't have the guts to stand up to Krishnamena? You know, and what good was it that others were put in out there, including General Patania, who was later put in as GOC 4 days, sending a postcard to Nehru that gave me a chance to fight as a soldier once again to redeem my reputation. 
because he was also a military cross from Second World War. His son also rose to be a major general. Right. So these are people who should have been removed. You know how the army works. You know what happened in Kargil when that cartoon a brigadier of 102 brigade, was it 102 brigade or whatever, say, you know, floating around near the Mushko Valley saying that I've written to the chief. What business do you have to write to the chief when you have a GOC and a core commander and an army commander on top of you? Why are you bypassing the chain of command? He was sidestepped. And there was an inquiry ordered to see whether his mental health was okay or not. That's how the army works. The army doesn't work by saying, that culture has continues to prevail in South Block. That get a bloody bureaucrat to write a small note to say that no officer below 20 years service will be considered as a retiree, as me. And you have Lieutenant General sending letters to me of apologies to say that's a policy I cannot overrule. Then leave your bloody rank and go home. But that was the problem then, that is the problem now. And yes, were there changes? There were some changes. As one general once told me, that we began to change from a ceremonial army to a professional army. Before that, there was a lot of emphasis on spit and polish and parades and, you know, how your quarter guard looked as against how your training team looked. But things have changed. Things have changed. We are today a solid professional army. And I'm very, very certain I can bet my bloody life's reputation on it. Nobody on earth can take away any Indian territory if it's left to the army. If it's left to a political leadership, ah, that's a matter of a separate debate. And finally, what is it that we can... Uh, there was a, Yozo's, another question was about, uh, did it show results in 65 or not? Of course it showed results. You know, the yeah. good thing in 65 was that I've done an interview with Marshal of the Air Force, then a Chief Marshal Arjun Singh. And he was the man who alerted Sri Vaibhi Chavan about the Chinese, uh, Pakistani intrusions in JNK. And Chavan Sahib said that get on with it and prepare for war. I'll handle the cabinet. You know, and that changed the situation. We won that war, but for the lethargy on the part of South Block, to declare it was an Indian victory. It was at best at best a draw. But we gained more territory, knocked off more tanks, more aircrafts, and killed more Pakistanis than they did. I don't know how they call it a victory. Because Ayub Khan basically set out to do a victory. And when he found nothing was happening on the Punjab front, thanks to the fight back put up by, you know, in places like Hemkaran and Philora, and Abdul Hamid got his Parmi Chakra there, that the Pakistan army ran to protect Lahore and Sialkot. Our troops reached Sialkot before them, but they didn't have orders what to do, so they just waited. And when you wait, they came back and they took it back and they said, oh, we defended Sialkot and Lahore. And the Soviet Union, by the way, let us down in the 65 talks in Tashkent, right? They promised us we'll go back to status quo ante, but we did not. And therefore, the confusion remained into what were our claims and their claims. But today, I think the solution lies in accepting as is, where is solution. Which means it may hurt a lot of people's sensibilities that mera khali sawal ye agar wo aapki territory aksai chin hai. To aap mein se koon aksai chin ke upar se uda hai in a flight over the last 70 years? 
If it's not your territory, you can't fly over it. Or the enemy will not let you fly over it. So therefore, claims over Aksai Chin, I feel, are based on complicated historical claims. Sometimes we claimed uh, up to the Johnson line, as we've shown on the map. Sometimes they accepted the Johnson line, but borders should run around geographical features and watershed lines. Or what you grab is for you to keep. Will you accept a settlement over it or not? We have to do a little soul searching. If you want the problem to continue in eternity, who suffers? The poor soldier. He sits in the bloody cold and freezes out there because nobody in Delhi has the guts to take a decision. You know, since 2013, 2013, uh, there have been more standoffs than in the four decades before. And, you know, we've also seen it's also been a result of Xi Jinping ascending to power. Yeah. Uh, 2015, China released a white paper to make make it uh, to, to have a superpower navy by 2030. And China has a 100-year plan from 1949, very clear by, that by 2049, China would uh, want to be the, the biggest power on earth and the center of the earth, the Tianxia concept, which they had from the 15th century. Uh, Xi Jinping seems to have advanced Chinese plans. And I'm just uh, you know, bringing the dial to a more contemporary question. How do you see and where, what, where do you see the future of India-China disputes right now? Does con contested lands uh, or the contested lands that you, you talk about in your book become contested areas of influence, where, which includes other satellite countries in the region, the neighborhood influence, uh, the gray zone warfare, or uh, the unrestricted warfare, as the Chinese call it. It's the Indian Ocean, the Indo-Pacific. Do you see that uh, the, the, the areas of contestation or contested influences extend to, 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 to places far beyond the borders, given that both India and China have ambitions? China has ambitions of being a global superpower. India wants to become a, a, an influential power in the region. Do you see that that uh, being uh, that changing the grounds of or areas where the two powers will have more um, points of uh, contestation? Well, the first thing is China works to a plan. There is an interesting book by Ambassador Gokhale, former Foreign Secretary, which he calls the long game, that how China negotiates with you. It also explains how the Chinese establishment works, which means that. There is, it's like an octopus. That's what he says. There is a big head on top, which is managed by the Communist Party and Chinese uh, leadership. And beyond that, there are arms of the octopus. So there's the Chinese armed forces, the PLA, PLA Navy, PLA Air Force, the Foreign Office, the intelligence agencies, the finance ministry, everybody else. And these are people who look for directions from the central leadership. The central leadership had made out a vision 2050. Why? Because in 1949, the Communist Party came into being and the Communist rule led by Mao Zedong created modern-day China. Some would have argued that in 1920, uh, the Communist Party came into being in Shanghai and therefore in 2020, China wanted to also establishes rent over all disputed territories and hence Galwan Africa. 
apart from the fact that china always exploits a global situation and the pandemic was to china's advantage i have written an article on 3rd april 2020 in the open magazine where i have argued that the virus came from a lab and it was let loose on the world by design by china and some people in america who wanted the prices of vaccinations to go up so that america's drug industry bounces back and china is able to take control over all small and medium sized businesses and economies all over the world because it's the damn west that has made china so rich over the years in the hope that china being rich would then become like any rich western democracy but obviously they get everything wrong as i argue that washington has more think tanks than the british army has tanks but they still get every assessment wrong and so it has clearly happened in the case of china it's happened again in the case of ukraine and russia so best not to take american assessments too seriously but what you can take seriously is some intelligence inputs that come from america because they have a vast intelligence network now what is china going to do you see we have two three levels of dispute with china one is a territorial dispute and this book is largely about the territorial dispute then there is a geostrategic dispute with china in our areas of strategic influence what is our area of strategic i would argue it is from the coast of africa to the straits of malacca so therefore all the area in that area we cannot control it but it's an area of strategic importance to us and obviously an area of strategic influence three so in this point itself your question very valid question we should work harder to create our pockets of influence but like fools again our great mandarins in south block have advised successive prime ministers to keep investing in afghanistan because wo hamare purane dost the so you put 2 billion dollars there and had you put the 2 billion dollars in your neighborhood a billion in nepal or a billion in bangladesh and half a mil half a billion in nepal and sri lanka you would have them eating out of your hands but you are trying to win them over because we have old historic religious ties with them yaar all that doesn't matter in geopolitics and diplomacy you know your enemy's enemy is your friend it's a thumb rule china is now dominating 75% or more of bangladesh's defense requirements nepal was getting lured into a 500 million dollar american package for their water systems and dams and everything and yes there was a big sort of nepalese movement nepalese pride and said ki we can't give it to americans but it's an amount of money that you can happily get the american nepalese at least to tell the chinese that we don't want any extra pact with you we'll just develop nepal and china may or may not develop but if you do more development there then your chances of winning brownie points are more than only 
having these Madeshis stand up and contest the Nepalese constitution. Yes, the constitution is lopsided, no doubt. Sri Lanka, the Rajapaksha brothers have sold the countries to the Chinese. Whether it is Ambantota port or now parts of Colombo port, you're doing, I mean, you are trying to win over by giving them some housing in Tamil areas and whatever else. The fact is that your core interest is your neighborhood. You can't buy out Pakistan. But America could have bought out Pakistan. I raised this point in a seminar in London 10 years ago. I was moderating a session which was by Stephen Cohen, the eminent Stephen Cohen, who's no more. Mr. Parthasati, India's ambassador to Pakistan, and Malia Lodi was Pakistan's ambassador to London and Washington. And I said to Stephen Cohen, I said, before we open it up to the audience, Professor Cohen, I want to exercise the moderator's uh, privilege and ask you a simple question. After 9-11, did you go into a wrong country? So obviously the audience started sniggering. What I basically was asking that you went into Afghanistan partly because it was a winnable war, you thought. Partly because you created the Al-Qaeda, so you knew where the problem lay. But partly because you didn't want to confront Pakistan, which was really the patron of the Al-Qaeda's now. So you didn't have to fight them if instead of spending 600 million then and now over a billion now, I asked him 10 years ago, you had given 60 billion to Pakistan yeah. army because you spent 600 billion there. Give 10% to the Pakistan army. You would have given them more than what China has given them to buy them out. And they would have happily sent their soldiers to go and fight with the Al-Qaeda there as they send later on or the Taliban later. So, you know, we don't do a dispassionate analysis of things. That's the bloody problem in South Block. Everyone gets taken over by emotion. How can we abandon them? Yeah, the world keeps changing. I told the Pakistani so many times on television shows. I said, you've been taken, you become a Pakistan ally, you have been duffed by them thrice. You'll again go back. Abhi to Imran Khan hai, Russia and he's gone to Beijing also. After some time, they will, when things dry out, the coffers dry out, they send, they'll again go back to Washington. So, and you would have seen a lot of them at with you in the university when you were studying there. So the Pakis are all over the place. I'll tell you, there are two things Pakistan invests in. If we invested in that, we'd be a great power. The military and the quality of our diplomats. Economy will come by and by. Today, the world fears Russia. They keep saying economy is weak. But Russia can feed itself. You might not agree with me because I know you would have some views about American foreign policy having studied in the US. But let me tell you, Russia has seen... I'm digressing a bit, both in Georgia and in Crimea. Announcements of sanctions don't hold for beyond a point. The world has to get back to business as usual. That's, that's, that's very interesting and very hard-hitting in space. Uh, and I agree with you that, you know, over a period of time, uh, you know, real politic in, in a sense, in, insofar as the U.S. is concerned, has, has been a deterrent in terms of, deterrent in terms of their interests and how they have progressed, how they have, Especially now, uh, that that hasn't worked to their favor in the last few years. Sorry, were you, were you yeah, I just wanted to make another point, and that was yeah. a response to your third part of the question. Right. So, what kind of warfare are we going to face with China? On territorial front, we are okay. We can hold our own in Himalayas and in the high seas. 
in the geostrategic front we have to pull out money to put in our neighbors because it's all cash deals at the end of the day internally we have to be prepared against what you talked about unrestricted which is really on three fronts china buys out small and medium enterprises which are weak which are collapsing apart from that china buys out ngos and left leaning communists who will make anti government noises and thirdly they then target your political leadership i'm reading a very interesting book by a us brigadier general keep forgetting the title uh, you know what he says that when mr biden was vice president he went to china for some talks air force 2 that's what the vice president flies in air force 1 is for the president with him went his son so while biden was doing a deal with the chinese to try and bring down some kind of trading arrangements with the russians uh with the chinese in a way that america and china would you know continue to prosper without harming each other's interests and by the way the current american sanctions are also put out in such a way that america china business interests doesn't get hurt right with biden was his son he was doing business deals on the side on air force 2 he came back and a month a week later biden's son's company received a 1 billion dollar chinese investment so this brigadier general would be in american defense attache in beijing has worked with the national security council in the us has worked in white house has worked in think tanks he has a phd also and he says china is all over the american establishment all over the thing in fact he brought out that in trump's time the labor and later the trade secretary was a lady who was married to uh, a congressman who was pro trump but her father was a very close friend of chinese president hu jintao and therefore she was passing orders to make americans unemployed so that chinese business would prosper in america and it's happening in front of everyone's nose and in america they can't prevent it so i would say let's be aware of that in india abhi tak to nahi hua hai but if we get signs of it let's put our foot down because that is how china will take you over and keep you only deflected on the territories they will take your society over from giving you cheap chinese products whether it is cell phones or the statues of gods everything is made in china thank you sir that's a that's a great point in fact uh, just to add to your point it, this this uh, this approach has been there since the 1960s it's just that they didn't have the wherewithal at that point of time the uh, changing the narrative uh redefining or or trying to trying to coax others to believe in what yeah. they've been doing yeah. uh francois mitterrand uh, you know later on to become the french president was visiting uh, china in late 1950s and at that point of time or i think it was early 1960s he was taken around china and he uh, after he ended his tour Mm-hmm. he went back to france and he told them how uh, the west was completely wrong about communist china and how people were very happy out there 
they were, so he did that uh, mao and uh, zhao did that with labor mps in uk as well so they would get these western politicians to china uh, brainwash them and then send them back to become their ambassadors today with the social media and all else china invests 10 billion every year into uh, the social narrative or changing the social narrative and also investing in several other aspects such as you mentioned the stakeholders of various companies etc which is where um, the the intent to impact the world and and sort of you know and and they've over a period of time they've also dismantled the uh, the the international institutions as we've seen with who and some of the others so uh, i don't think we would have much time so but if there is anything else that you would like to add i said so earlier that china is working to a plan we are not and therefore we have to have uh, uh and i've said this to the national security advisor also that i said sir we need to have a plan which is what you call strategic communication plan or we can you know uh, have a plan on how we can actually put across our messaging our biggest strength is the indian diaspora we are not exploiting them enough you know i give lectures on military media communication or national security communication i'm giving one at the usi on friday and i always argue that you know this we're down to tera mera and turf battles even internally that if you are in the government you can be trusted with your opinion on issues of sensitivity or national security and for anybody else to be trusted to give an opinion i have made films in the past the am i and other areas have looked at it and they nitpick about one word here and one word there you know just like i was recording the other day in a studio and one studio guy came to me and said ki sir aapke piche se jo hai na wo zara mic ka taar dikh raha hai maine kaha agar jo aadmi mere mic ka taar hi dekhega na to wo bewakoof hai tum us audience ko agar khush karna cha rahe ho ki kya tum usko khush karna cha rahe ho ki jo samajhne ki koshish kar but that charlie has been employed to do that only na so the problem is that there are a lot of people who, whose job depends on yaar tumne maruf raza ki script dekhi aur usme tumne ye nahi dekha तो उसने पीओ को पीओ के को पीओ के नहीं बोला उसने बोला यू नो द अस्ट वाइल जम्मू एंड कश्मीर हम उसी में लगे हुए इन्फेंट्री लेक्चर समर्स गो वन जनरल सेट टू मी इज एक्स डीजीएमिंग क्रोज यू एक्सप्लेन टू अस द बिग पिक्चर इन कश्मीर दैट वाई शुड बी be there in the first place and what is at stake and all credit to the good soul of general bipin rawat the late general bipin rawat he read my book on kashmir and he organized for me to give the infantry lecture so when i met general rawat i said to me i said sir why be i'm nobody he said no 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 i had always wanted to have one lecture by you before i retired and there were 350 people who listened in and the feedback was positive some of them didn't give any response including senior generals because they were too shocked the all the paradigms they had lived with all the years that kashmir hamara hai because it is said hamara hai 
they found it difficult to accept that there is a bigger British game that was played out where the British wanted to have total control over Kashmir, not India or Pakistan. And Kashmir came to us because of default. Because the Maharaja of Kashmir, he panicked, he left Kashmir and came to Jammu with 90 truckloads of goodies. And what did he say? We've lost Kashmir. There are many nationalist people who now say, Bade Mahan thi. Wo Kashmir Bharat mein lai thi. Are yaar, wo Kashmir chhodke bhaag gai thi. Wo to Bharatiya Sena ne Kashmir ko pakad ke rakha hai. Left to even the bloody Abdullahs, Kashmir would have gone long ago. But I'm digressing. But Kashmir is linked to the China issue, by the way. Okay. Yes, yes. China's involvement in Aksai chain has a geostrategic implication for Kashmir. It has a geostrategic implication for Siachen. Siachen is a battle that Pakistan is fighting for us on behest of China. I'm giving a talk on this at ISS in London in May. But I'm going to explain to the white audience, ki, boss, this is the problem of your creation. We are I'm jail rails. Right, right. In fact, in fact, 1965, as as um, you know, as way back in 1965, China had had participated in uh, egging on Pakistan as you know, in in terms of uh, their plan on Kashmir and and China's plan on Sikkim. So it goes back uh, to to that time of 1965, and I think it's after uh, the 1963 agreement that happened between China and Pakistan that China started to take interest in Kashmir because it sort of suited them geographically that, uh, you know, Pakistan has an interest there. So, yes, it, it goes back, uh, way, way back to 1965. And it's, and it's only after 63 that yeah. China-Pakistan relations began to firm up because until then China looked at Pakistan with suspicion as a U.S. ally. Right. Remember, the U.S. had a strong linkage with Pakistan. And Pakistan became part of the Seattle-Cento alliances in the 50s. And it was Pakistan's relationship with the US and with China that it was able to get Henry Kissinger to go to China in 1971. That started what came to be known as ping-pong diplomacy Correct. and yeah. led to US-China-Nixon-Mao meet. And that led to US-China hopes of support to Pakistan in the 71 war. That in turn led Mrs. Gandhi in August 71 to do an arrangement with the Russians which uh, gave us that window to take over East Pakistan because of the delays in the UN Security Council resolution. That's right. That's right. And in fact, in fact, in 1959-60, Ayub Khan, uh, then president of Pakistan, had taken a flight over India and he stopped over in Delhi. And there was a dispute between China and Pakistan that was going on at that point of time. And Pakistan hadn't cozied up to China uh, during, during that period. So Ayub Khan wanted to have a joint front against China. And he wanted India and Pakistan to have a joint front against uh, China. And this was 1959-60. And, and things started to change thereafter. I think he... And, 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 and Panditji responded, joint defense against what? This is in my earlier book on Kashmir, Wars and No Peace Over Kashmir, that I wrote in 95. Uh, so, uh, you know, this illusion that was there. Apparently, people say that Panditji was such a giant that nobody could contest him. You know, interestingly, after Panditji passed away, I've said that in my book, 
and a foreign secretary of india has admitted that to me i have his email admitting that that when the chinese again offered us 462 an arrangement that let's settle aksai chin with what we have we have what you have you have and make me online in any ways a given in india's favor mr parthasarthi who is not the current parthasarthi that you see on tv but another parthasarthi who was also secretary in the mea he dismissed the suggestion by saying we'll be being disloyal to nehru's legacy ye problem hai mea is still carrying the baggage of nehru i said that in my book discussion at the iic when a lot of former ambassadors came there and the one a former ambassador also did the discussion on my book ambassador chenoy who's director idsa as a problem with all of you is you can't get over nehru yeah and because of that we can't solve the pro- chinese problem ab ye hai ki sahab main wo zameen ka tukda unhe nahi dunga kyunki pitaji ne kaha tha ki wo zameen parso se hamari chali aa rahi to hum wo zameen nahi denge to fir ab aage nahi badh sakte so that's true i think uh, the legacy has continued to uh, uh, play in the minds of uh, you know diplomats and and you know you've you've said somewhere in the book that you know the, it is the, the problem has been with the politico bureaucratic elite that has continued to falter at different stages we've had joint working groups in the 80s and then we've had several rounds of discussions in 93 96 2005 2000 and you know all of that has that has taken place that has led us nowhere and yet we continue to falter and wonder uh, waffle and move along i think that is that is something that needs to change you've mentioned declassification that's something that i that i uh, you know uh, and it's linked to what you've been talking about uh why you know over the years and it's very important that historians write books about that the era about the the history that's transpired in the last 60 100 odd years because uh, we haven't had an official history which is uh, declassified a declassified history which which carries uh, inputs from that time and i think that is that is something that's still due do we have had official histories but they have later were uh, you know clarified to have not been as official as as they were supposed to be uh, by, uh, by 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 uh, by mr prasad and 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 then somebody else so you've had histories written uh, released by uh, the the government but they've not been declassified entirely and especially one of those things that that has happened that's kind of come to bite india was which you briefly mentioned uh, 1970 71 Uh, Neville Maxwell's history, in the absence of us telling our history, Neville Maxwell's history carried more weight and thus swayed the U.S. Uh, policy led by Henry Kissinger and Nixon on China. So, your your thoughts on declassification, and do you think that is something that we would uh, be able to overcome in uh, in in times to come? See the last part first. I don't think we'll overcome that very easily because that is the nature of Indian bureaucracy. you know when i was studying in england at kings college uh my head of department had to sign a letter every month to say that i am around and i haven't run away and, you know disappeared into the english woods uh and he used to say why do you need this every month i was then an army officer on study leave by the way and i said you know we have to submit this report to army headquarters he says god your bureaucracy is worse than ours you know we learnt it from the british so that we are worse than them second you know there have been reviews that have come out of my book and at least 
two reviews written by former diplomats have both started the first paragraph raving about Madam Nirupuma Rao's book on Sino-Indian relations 49 to 62. I have broadly just said that I have great respect for her, but is she saying something new with all the information that she had access to as ambassador to China, as GSXP, as foreign secretary, and even ambassador to the US? What is she? Has she, I haven't read the book, but I want to raise a question. And that's in my book. I have given very clear a paragraph to that. That all important documents from Pandit Nehru's office between 49 and 62 was being passed on to the CIA. And there are three people who have said that, and I've given them in my footnote. Mr. Giri Deshinkar, former dip diplomat and then head of the Institute of Chinese Studies. Ambassador Stopton who has himself written a book on China, and he's written a foreword to my book. And Mr. Sarvapalli Gopal, head of the Indian historical section, biographer Nehru, and later professor at St. Anthony's Oxford. Has Ms. Rao said that? Or was that too sensitive for her to say? I just want to raise that one question. Now, the fact is declassification as a thumb rule. You know, I must quote to you a little experience. Once, you know, I love to visit museums. I think you also probably do. So once I was in Washington, I visited a museum called Museum. That's the News Museum. And you know, the two guys at the gate were two black guys. They looked at me, I'm also semi-black. So they asked me, they said, where are you from? I said, India. They said, oh, Amitabh Bachchan. So I said, yes, Amitabh. You know, they knew a couple of his films, these black guys who were the guys who were taking the ticket. So people know about India more than just you leave it to analysts. When I went inside, there's a map of the world and that shows the level of freedom every country has in the American assessment of things. And we are seen as about 50% free. This will come as a shock to all Indians because we are allowed to shoot off our mouth on most things. Right? We have a free press, we have television, we have radio. And as Amartya Sen would argue, that we are an argumentative lot, argumentative Indians. So why does the world think we are semi-free? Because we don't come out with information on subjects the world wants to know more about. We don't have a culture of declassification. The other day I got a call from an officer in the Ministry of Defense. And he's a JNU PhD. He says, sir, I've been asked to write the history of these wars compiling. So I need your help and all. So I said, if you have to write it, then you write it. He says, sir, I've read all your books and all that stuff. So we need your help. So I said, see, I am not willing to take on your responsibility. And you have to tell me how much of the truth are you willing to come out with? He says, I will write it, but then the authorities will decide what do we go to public with. So as an officer said, as a major said in a sand model discussion in Hisar in 1984, when I was with the Mechanized Forces, that he says, he told the GOC, he later himself became a GOC. He says, sir, battle history is that which is written after battles. What happens on the ground, only those who are there on the ground know. So, you don't get access to much information. You may have had access to the war diaries of 
second grenadiers and other units 18 rajputs and all that were there in athula but the fact of the matter is that we need to become transparent but having said that i would like to counter that point by saying how much transparency is good how much do you need to come out with to make a point as long as you can have a half decent narrative and i can tell you something with a lot of pride and confidence this book which i sent copies across to the foreign secretary the army chief the nsa and others i got a really reassuring phone call from a colonel in the military operations i'd given a copy to general bipin rawat also he said maruf main thoda travel kar raha hu uske baad aake release kar dunga but you know the rest sadly he never came back but his office passed this book on to military operations and the general rawat had said to me that i'll just get your maps and other things checked up if there are nothing that would cause an embarrassment to us i said fine sir so a colonel called me and he said sir i've read your book with interest i've got your number i don't give my number very easily so he said i got your number uh from the letter you written to general rawat and that letter somehow came to me because i'm handling the china part in military operations and i can tell you sir there is nothing i can fault in the book and you know how the military operations and military intelligence look at what they hair comb leke dekhte hain ek ek word ko ki kahan pe aapne kuch aisa likh diya jisse embarrassment nahi ho jaye because the chinese say that on one side you have general jj singh who on my tv show former army chief and i also had as dmo has said that the border with china is close to 4200 kilometers but the often the claim that india makes is of 3488 kilometers right so you first decide what length of the border you want then we'll talk you know china uses all these evasive tactics the point i'm making is that if a book like this is reasonably accurate and full marks to the army chief general naravne i sent him a copy without getting back to me i think he instructed uh, adgpi that ask all units to pick up a copy so i get a call or two or three every day for some hawaldar or some babuji ki sir ye contested lands kahan se milegi so then i got a standard message on my phone that i sms to them ki ye पब्लिक मैंने वही किताब लिख दी मैं पब्लिश नहीं किया सो आई गिव यू द पब्लिशर्स नेम एक्सेट्रा that will tell you uh, in uh, and and it's a quick read it's a quick read not because uh, you know it's it's just uh, it's a it's a it's a shorter book but it's also because it's been lucidly written and uh, you know i would urge you to uh, pick up the book you mentioned or talked about the cuban uh, missile crisis and uh, the misadventurism of china at that point in time and uh, now here in 2022 uh, we have this ukraine crisis and uh, you don't really don't know where it it would lead to 
So do you foresee any misadventurism on part of China um, taking advantage of uh, this situation? This was one question. And the second question was how much of a void um, the untimely and sad demise of General Vipin Rawat um, you know, has left as far as the modernization of uh, Indian armed forces is concerned. Thank you so much. Uh, both are very good questions. And in both cases, uh, I'll give you my opinion. I can't say that is the government of India's opinion. Uh, but I think the possibility of China exploiting what is the end outcome of Ukraine. Because if the world is unable to come back with a comprehensive set of responses against Russia, though, as Shiv Shankar Menon Saab, our former foreign secretary and NSA, had argued the Indian position in 2014 to say China, uh, Russia also has legitimate interests in Ukraine. So, you know, India's position is pretty neutral, but we understand both sides of the story and we can't don't get swayed by propaganda as America does. Interestingly, yesterday I was on a show with Rahul Shiv Shankar at 8 p.m. And after 8.30, there was a very eminent American journalist and a former American general. And I was surprised to see how strongly they are both divided over should America do more or is America responsible for the mess there is. Okay. So, likewise, we cannot expect either America or anybody to hold our hand, our guard should be up and the window for China to do something, I would say begins now with first Russia, Ukraine. And secondly, in March, they're going to have major military exercises. Is this exercises going to turn into another punch into India as Russia did with Belarus exercises? If so, how are we going to respond? I think we need to remain alert to that. I am told that our people have been bitten once. They are not going to be shy anymore. They are going to be ready for it. As far as General Rawat is concerned, I had the privilege of serving with him in Dehradun as instructors in IMA. And I developed an immense liking for the man who was very practical, very down-to-earth, very honest, and a fine soldier by all accounts. Prabhul knows him better because he was Prabhul's commanding officer. Uh, but I think his going away has certainly created a void. There are certain initiatives that he wanted to push through despite opposition from people in the service. And I'm shocked and ashamed to say that many ex-servicemen were rejoicing his going away. You know, it is a very sad reflection on the kind of beliefs and values these people hold. Whatever the man was doing, he was doing in national interest. The man deserved all the respect and accolades that are given to him. Had he stayed longer, he would have fulfilled many of the mandates that he had in mind. But having said that, the military is not short of talent. It is, and that's the point I made in 62 also, that the military was not short of talent. If BG Call was sacked after the first attack on Nathula, uh, on Namkachu, and he came running back to Delhi and pretended to be sick. And can you imagine? He was commanding a bloody operating corps in NIFA and war is on and he's sitting in his, lying in his bed and trying to run a battle from his bed in Krishnamen and Mark. And there were ministers who were coming to pay respect to him. minister 
first sack the damn guy and put a capable chap in charge out there. Nobody else put General Umrao Singh, Umrao Singh in charge who knew the area, who opposed Nehru's diktats and was shifted to Siliguri. He would have saved the day. So, there are good people always in the military. You don't go up. I've always believed in the military. You can be misjudged by one rank and go up. If you were a brigadier and you were going to go to home, if you were going to go to home, then you would have to go to home. If you were going to go to home, then you would have to go to home. सुगदार साहब ने हमें बताया था कि साहब हमें एक कहावत होती है कि जो अफसर ब्रिगेडियर की रैंक के ऊपर चले गया उसने आत्मा का सौदा कर दिया राइट तो वो भी हालत हो सकती है कि आप ब्रिगेडियर होकर अपनी पैर लगा दें तो सब कहेंगे साहब आप घर चले जाइए यू टू मच ऑफ एन ऑब्स्ट्रक्शन टू द जनरल नेरेटिव बट देर आर गुड पीपल अवेलेबल कोपेबल पीपल अवेलेबल वाई दे आर नॉट अपॉइंटिंग न्यू सी डी एस एज ए रिप्लेशन टू जनरल रावत देर आर मेनी पोलिटिकल इशूज फर्क It's like saying which professor is better than the other in the department in the university. I can't say that for Indian universities, but I can certainly say that for foreign universities that you become a professor, you are a pundit in your own area. Would you like to give concluding remarks, Professor? Uh, very grateful to Mr. Maruf Raza, who has uh, you know walked us through his book in terms of uh, the the salient points and also the the highlights. that we should uh, as as uh, as indian citizens who are aware of what's going on between india and china need to understand and know better um, not because we are uh, fond of history alone but it is uh, and this issue continues to be a contemporary issue and which uh, as uh, chaddaji also mentioned in his question is also uh, something that that overlaps several global issues the ukraine issue for instance and several other issues in the past as well so thank you sir thank you for a, a wonderful talk it's been a great session and um, thanks everyone for organizing this